Thank you very much, first of all. Uh, it's great to be here, coming from the very edge of the British Empire, all the way here. Uh, it is nice. It's scorching hot in Jerusalem. So this is a, a wonderful respite. It is, it is. It's true, it's wonderful, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> and this, maybe the message today is this could be wonderful. Um, I want to say, I want to, so many thanks. I want to say, to, to use my privilege standing here to say two things dovetailing your, your presentation. If I may, first of all, I, I'm personally very um, somewhat unhappy with the very uh, general uh, description of what religious is, religion is. I think it's precisely in the context you're talking about, there must be a more subtle way to describe what's going on and the word religion, being, for example, being a lapsed Catholic, cannot be religious in any simple sense of the word. So you are lapsed, so you do not quite. So there's a, there must be something more subtle to, to think about these kind of uh, phenomena of people who are thinking in spiritual terms, but not within the, um, not within the um, normal orthodox, orthodox kind of um, 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 institutional way of thinking religion. And I'm thinking of two, two things. One is the uh, very famous uh, um, distinction by Georg Simmel between religi religion and religiosity, right? So you can have some kind of sensual feeling of religious feeling without belonging to any kind of established religion. And the second thing I should mention, perhaps, is for me very kind of eye-opening work by um, Talal Assad about the formation of the secular, where he tries to make an argument that the secular and the and the um, and the um, and the religious has a dialectic that is more complex than what we what we try to think about. So it is very easy for he he basically argues it's very easy for us to assume that we are secular and say about them that they're religious, well, actually, the, 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 the relationship is much more complex. There's a sort of dialectic uh, uh, going on. And the reason I'm saying this is because I worked on Gershom Sholem and Martin Buba, and I, I'm not sure that they're religious in any simple sense of the word. So I'm, I'm kind of struggling. I, I, it's not that I have a solution, but I have some. And the second thing, I, I, before I, I jump into my talk, is to say uh, this dovetails on, on what you said at the very end. Uh, the question arises uh, when you have a um, um, great messianic expectation, you have great expectation that something is going to happen. There's a Stephen Georga person, or there's, or there's Hitler coming around, or there's a second, or first world war, and, or the first, second world war, and there's a sense that something is happening, and then it doesn't. It doesn't quite transpire the way you imagine. And the question is, what happens then, and the crisis that is involved in this, and this is a, the subject of my talk and the subject of one of the chapters in my book, and it is titled, um, no, that's not my talk, this is my talk, excuse me, it's talking uh, about Sholem Zionism in the study of Sabbatonism, and I want to start with some very, very, very general remarks, um, and to say that if there is a general lesson that one can take from um, from horror movies and disaster films, and excuse me, those connoisseurs of horror films, because I'm not a big on this, but I, I, I would like to say that if there's anything to say is that uh, terrible things happen to the oblivious, right? For example, okay, so imagine a group of college students, or as they call it in the States, college kids, 
um, heading into the woods for a long weekend of hiking and fishing and whatnot. And we know, we know from the outset that they're doomed. Or imagine a, a father bringing his, his daughter to school, right, opening the door and saying, you know, have a great day, I'll see you in the evening, you know, this is going to end terribly. We know it, and, 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 and we know more than that, that it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, be terrible and it's going to just get worse. This is the, this is the trajectory of, of, of disaster films, and, and it is important that, that, um, that the protagonists are naive uh, because obviously this is a message for, for us, for the viewers, saying um, that maybe rather than sitting in the, in the cinema and feeling everything is fine and that we should enjoy the film, maybe, and this is kind of the subterranean, we should, we should be afraid, or as the movies have it, be very afraid. Um, and, and, and because perhaps this kind of terrible disaster that was unleashed on the, on, or similar disaster was unleashed on the, on the figures of the protagonist in the film is going to be unleashed on us as well. Now, I don't know if this is the case, that disasters happen to the oblivious. I think uh, disasters could happen to anybody. But I, would, I, I thought it would be helpful to start with this because um, um, I want to talk about a different crisis. And this is a crisis that is triggered not by being oblivious, not even by tempting fate. This is the uh, crisis that is triggered by hope, or better said, uh, by the realization of a long-awaited dream. And this is the case of Gershom Sholem and the Messianic movement of Sabatai Tzvi. So start very from the beginning. Gershom Sholem was born in 1897, Berlin, become one of the leading intellectuals, probably Israel's most famous scholar. And he started his academic work in Munich. Um, and soon after completing his uh, uh, dissertation, he immigrated to Palestine, where he was to become one of the first lecturers of the Hebrew University. And throughout his life, he wrote hundreds, hundreds of articles and dozens of books about Jewish mysticism. But before all that, before the Hebrew University and before immigrating, and before even starting uh, to study uh, Jewish mysticism on the eve of World War I, Sholem was a young, enthusiast member of uh, the youth Zionist youth movement in Berlin and an avid reader of uh, Stefan George, among others. I mean, actually, he was an avid reader of everything. But Stefan George certainly hit a, hit a chord with the young Gershom Sholem. And it is in this context that Sholem wrote essays about Zionism and about this very important, and important concept about exile. Exile and exile that is in Berlin, where Sholem actually grew up. The young Sholem saw himself as a member of a revolutionary vanguard, as a Zionist, as a reformer, and who was willing, as he put it, described it himself in one of his diaries entries, to run headfirst into the wall. He wrote and debated the issues of, of Zionist critique in a small circle of like-minded people um, um, that, like him, believed that Zion will be everything that Germany was not. Whereas Germany was a, a conservative and spiritually va vacant and anti-Semitic, they all believe, so Scholem and his friend of the Zionist youth movement all believe that Zion will somehow will be a revolution, will be a place of spiritual renewal, and very importantly will be Jewish, so somehow uniquely Jewish. And then, then after being and doing all that, in 1923 he immigrated to Palestine. Uh, this, I want to kind of underline this no mean feat. After years of talking and arguing 
about Zionism, Sholem finally undertook the Zionist, the ultimate Zionist act. He immigrated, he did what is called Aliyah. Now, the contrast between Sholem's fascination with Zion and his experience of Jerusalem triggered a crisis, which I argue serves as the most relevant context for understanding his best and most well-read uh, influential and influential scholarly project. For it is in Jerusalem in the late, late 20s that Sholem embarked on a seminal, seminal work writing the history of the Sabbatian messianic movement. In essence, the Sabbatian movement crystallized, according to Sholem, the revolutionary excitement of the Luwianic myth, trust me on this one, into a concrete historical and political movement. And here too, the historical experience of the Messianic hope, so in the 16th century, in the era of Sabbatai Tzvi, uh, um, uh, the messia Messianic experience ended with bitter frustration. So both Sholem's personal experience and uh, the underlying theme of his work and the Sabbatian movement can be summoned with one leitmotif, uh, uh, which is failure or crisis to uh, feed into the topic of conversation. So let's start again from the beginning. Sholem decided to realize his long-awaited dream and to move to Palestine in an ominous moment. Both Germany and Palestine experienced a drastic economic downturn in the early 20s. Germany went through a legendary hyperinflation as a result of its war debt, and the situation in Palestine was better only in degree. There, too, the effects of post-war recession were strongly felt. According to Anita Shapira, the economic crisis in Palestine quickly developed into a crisis of self-confidence. In the 1920s, Shapira writes, nobody was certain that this interesting project, Jewish colonization of Palestine, would indeed survive. Nevertheless, although Sholem left Germany in October 1923 with uh, nothing but a handful of contacts and with a huge store of books, he had the good fortune to get a job rather quickly. With the help of some institutional finagling, he managed to land a, uh, a half-time position as a librarian at the national, the emerging National Library in Jerusalem. So. Um, the, uh, the, the head of the National Library, Samuel Hugo Bergman, a Czech Jew, uh, said, you know, I always write my bosses in England uh, letters and they never reply. So I'm just going to write that I hired you and they're never going to reply. So that's going to be fine. Of course, he gets a letter back saying you can't hire him for a full position. So Samuel Hugo Bergman gives him a half position. So that's, that's how Sholem starts his life in Jerusalem. Two months after arriving in Jerusalem, Sholem marries. He marries his first wife, Esha. And only a year and a half after that, he gets a half-time position teaching Kabbalah uh, at the newly founded Institute for Jewish Studies, the Seed Institute for the uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And so by 1925, it would seem Sholem's new life was well underway. He was married, and he had a job. Most importantly, Sholem now lived in Jerusalem. So it uh, would indeed seem that Zionist, Sholem's Zionist odyssey reached its happy conclusion then and there. This impression is reinforced by Scholem himself, who ended his autobiography from 1977, so this is many years later, as a young and promising professor at the newly founded institution nestled in the uh, hills of Jerusalem. The title of uh, his autobiography, as I'm sure many of you know, From Berlin to Jerusalem, neatly summarizes Scholem's self-fashioning. It is a coming-of-age story describing a protagonist from a yet unfulfilled state of being in exile to completion in Zion. 
however, and this is where it becomes interesting, judging from his personal writing and letters and publications, the years of 1923 to 1933, Scholem's life reached nothing of a fulfillment. In Berlin in the 1910s, he envisioned a new harmonic society made up enthusiastic young men and women who could, very similar to this kind of uh, visions, could throw away a mantle of institutional mass society and become one. This is the idea. The Zionist youth movement drew heavily from the German youth movement, which uh, was based on ideology, was based on reading from the German romantics and the Nietzsche and Stefan Georg and many others. But in Palestine, so this is in Berlin, but in Palestine, these ideas were uh, rather outlandish. The institutions of the Yishuv, that is the pre-state Jewish Zionist entity, um, <coughs> were concerned pretty much with everything but the fostering of a plentiful harmonic spiritual society. And so in reaction to the political pal situation in Palestine, Sholem plunged head on into pol politics and became among the most active and the most vocal members of the Brit Shalom organization. Probably Sholem's most volatile um, political statement appeared in November 20, 1928 in the Berlin-based Jüdische Rundschau. The title of this uh, publication is uh, Ist die Verständigung mit den Araber gescheitert? So is the communication with the Arabs um, ruined? Yeah, something like this. And in this publication, Sholem commented on events which took place a few weeks earlier at the most sacred site for Jewish religious religion on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. In the early morning hours of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, 1928, the British police detail arrived at the Western Wall with orders to dismantle a screen cloth, a mechitza, that was meant to separate between the um, men and women in the area next to the wall. So, so Jews, uh, Jews come to pray could, could have separation. And this, was, this is custom in any, any kind of worship, Jewish worship, Orthodox Jewish worshiping place. The, erecting the, the problem was that erecting this cloth barrier next to the, uh, to, the, to the Western Wall violated the Ottoman status quo, which said that nothing can be changed, basically. The Muslim leadership complained, uh, and the policemen, the British policemen, arrived on the scene after the orders to remove the screen given a day earlier were ignored. They then brutally dismantled the cloth screen uh, and its wooden frame while violently beating uh, the old worshippers, the old, the old women, men and women that were there um, and that uh, protested their actions. As a result, a few elderly women were injured. The events of the Western Wall raised havoc with Jewish communities all over the world, with the Arab local population and with the British government. And in the months following the events, Jews from around the world vocally expressed their outrage. The police, they claimed, exhibited appalling insensitivity when they decided to use force on such a special day in such a special place towards obviously harmlessly elderly, elderly people who gathered to fulfill an obviously harmless religious duty. In response, the Arabs and the Arab um, leadership in Jerusalem felt that their suspicion was vindicated. There was nothing naive about the uh, cloth screen. The Jews were indeed poised to take over the revered noble sanctuary. The tensions continued to mount. There were also British, the British, there was the whole British uh, governmental inquiry into this thing, but the tension 
The important thing here is to say that the tension continued to escalate and it erupted in August 1929, so um, this is um, almost a year later, as the old Jewish communities of Hebron and Sefad were attacked and defenseless women and children were brutally murdered and their properties ransacked. In total, 116 Arabs and 133 Jews were killed during these riots, which to this day signify kind of the, the, the turning point in the relations between Arab and Jews in the region. Everybody talks about the events of 1929 and they refer to this. So Sholem's letter to the Yudish Rundschau was published a month and a half after the events next to the Western Wall at Yom Kippur, and 10 months before the outbreak of the violent riots that swept the country in the summer. It was first and foremost, the Sholem's letter, an attempt to stave off the polemical attacks against Shalom. It is true that the British should not have acted brutally, Sholem writes. It is also true that the Arab protest against the screen was far from being benevolent, he said. But, he claimed, the emotional outcry of Jews from around the world could have only been understood by the Arabs as the preliminary stages of a Jewish onslaught to reclaim the Temple Mount. And I quote Sholem, one needs only to imagine the feeling of a simple harmless homeowner who was deposed of 10 square meters from his front yard in order to appreciate what it meant for religious fanatics and for the Arab national sensitivities, when even the edge of the Holy Arab Temple was to be lost to the Jews. So according to Sholem, the Arab response to the events should be perfectly understandable, and the attempt to see it as proof of a reluctance to deal peacefully with the Jews was misinformed. This is what he argues in the Yudish Arunsha, the German-based Yudish Arunsha. The facts of the matter was, Sholem claimed that it was uh, uh, that the use of barely veiled threat and inflammatory rhetoric was common among both sides of the conflict, and therefore, he said, it is time to rein the fanatics on both sides, commit to negotiations, and to finding a lasting agreement as soon as possible before more violence will cause more suffering. So this he writes long before, or 10 months before the events of 920. Now, now we all can have uh, thoughts about what Sholem had to say. The point is, however, this, no matter how we turn this statement, it is a political one in the, in the simple sense of the word, discussing a concrete political issue and a concrete political uh, and historical event. It is not a meta-political Nietzschean yearning for the absolute typical of the youth movement and of the Georgia crisis we just heard. And this is no coincidence. Gershom Sholem of 1920, who lived who uh, lived in uh, 1920s, who lived in Jerusalem and was an active member of Shalom, was a more concrete and more somber person than the youth movement enthusiast who spent his day dreaming of Zion and arguing with his friends about what that might entail. Sholem's immigration to Palestine uh, transformed his political conceptions. We've said his appreciation of the historical hour, his style of writing, his social standing, and even a sense of self and of belonging. And all these transformations can succinctly be expressed by pointing to the fundamental concept and issue at stake, and that is the idea of Zion. The idea of Zion, which was sustained by Sholem while he was exiled, did not uh, survive the experience of immigration. The reality on the ground uh, um, forced on Sholem to concede that Zionist, Zionism in Palestine um, is not a dawn of a messianic age. In the years after his immigration, Sholem 
substitute the idea of Zion with a very mundane place called Jerusalem and the dream of a perfectly harmonic society with a somewhat rather imperfect politics and a plan for a parliamentary democracy. At this time, it is imperative uh, to note that letting the reality of Palestine crush the dream of Zion was in itself a political decision for some. The land of Palestine could still become the locus of a messianic revival of the Jewish people. Some, in fact, believed that Brit Shalom's call for a negotiation was a defeatist, sorry, not merely because it wanted to appease the enemy, but also because its political position entailed foregoing the essence of the Zionist, the essence of the Zionist dream, that is, foregoing its messianic aspirations. One such believer is the Zionist author Yuda Burla, who in the aftermath of the 29 riots wrote a scathing attack of Brit Shalom in the newspaper Davar. Davar was the mouthpiece of the, of the um, labor movement in uh, Palestine. Bula, who did not represent any faction, any specific faction, Zionist political uh, breach, uh, discourse accused Brit Shalom for deeply offending the spirit of Zionism by attacking, and I quote Bula on Sholem, this is what he has to say, Sholem, uh, uh, Brit Shalom attacks the heart of the ideal that beats in the folds of the people's soul, shattering itself of sense, its human and not only national conscious, and abusing its holiest of holy, the hope for complete redemption, Geul Shlema, this is the term. The historical messianic hope exists in the heart of the new Israeli man, in the force of political Zionism, he writes, who, uh, he who writes to lessen, severe, or stain the splendor of this hope the messianic hope within Zionism, the hand of the people will reach him first to silence him. But this is a non-veiled threat, and somebody, nobody speaks Hebrew here, I think. I have the Hebrew quote, it's very pretty. No. In his reply to Bula, so Sholem replies to Bula, Sholem expresses opinion about the messianic tendency in Zionism, more clearly than anywhere else. In his letter, Sholem writes a letter to Daval, published in the Daval. Sholem stated, I quote Sholem, I totally reject the notion that Zionism is a messianic movement, is a messianic movement, or that it has the right to employ religious language for its political ends. The redemption of the people of Israel, to which I strive as a Zionist, is not in any way identical with the religious redemption, which I hope will one day come. The Zionist idea belongs on one side of the messianic idea, and uh, sorry, the Zionist idea belongs on one side, and the messianic idea belongs on the other side. One kingdom does not touch the other. In Sholem's writing, uh, more direct uh, words are hard to come by, but we should carefully, carefully note that Sholem's claim is not merely political, but also historical. And therefore, with the statement, Sholem pitted himself not only in contrary to a certain political view, but also a certain historical understanding of the Jewish messianic idea, including the understanding of the messianic idea according to the a famous historian Yusuf Gdalia Klausner. Yusuf Klausner, the most significant intellectual of the revisionist party, was an expert on the history of the messianic idea in Judaism, who focused on the first and second temple period. This was, he wrote about it. The crux of his historical argument and our analysis was the identification. This is kind of similar to Katovich, maybe in the Jewish, uh, Jewish kind of, uh, coming also from Heidelberg. Um, um, 
uh, you focus, okay, the, the crux of historical analysis was the identification of the political and the spiritual aspect of Jewish Zionism. According to Klausner, the Jewish tradition never knew the distinction between political aspirations of the Jews as a nation and their spiritual yearning as a religious group. And I quote Klausner, in the course of the long evolution of the Jewish messianic idea, two different conceptions were inseparably, inseparably woven together, the political national salvation and the religious spiritual redemption. I will, I will skip the rest of the quote, but I think the idea is clear for, for Klausner, the messianic is a political aspiration to become a sovereign nation, and a religion to become a perfect folk. Then this is the same, it's woven, historically woven into one another. So for Klausner, they cannot be separated. Could not sure, be separated, sure never, separate never separated, mm -hmm. precisely, never separated. The consequence that Klausner draws from his historical analysis to his contemporary political situation is not difficult to foresee. Essentially, in order for Zionism to, concede, to succeed, this is Klausner, it must fashion itself according to the ideas of Messianism. It must be both politically vibrant, becoming its own sovereign nation, and spiritually fulfilling, becoming the perfect form. And by doing so, Zionism will finally, after 2,000 years or whatnot, finally will retrieve the, the ideal moment of Messianic experience. This is the ideal. Um, um, Sholem, uh, of course, did not share Klaus's uh, sentiment. In order to impress upon his reader the urgency of the issue, he employed a very powerful trope, Sabbatianism. In the letter to Bula, which I mentioned, he said Zion, uh, the Zionist ideal belongs on the one side and the Messianic ideal belongs on the other side. One kingdom does not touch the other, except, and here I com complete the quote, except in the hollow cliches of town hall meetings that sometimes instill in our youth a renewed spirit of Sabbatianism, which is destined to fail. By its inner roots, the Zionist movement does not fall under the jurisdiction of the Sabbatian movement, and the attempt to induce it with such Sabbatian spirit has caused already enough damage. Cholim's insistent warning against the using of the Messianic trope for the political arena went mostly unheard. Bichalom was marginal marginal, marginalized, and it eventually ceased to, to exist in, in the 1930s. To Sholem, it would uh, therefore seem that the political field was left wide open for right-wing thinkers who took advantage of their listeners to propagate uh, strange ideas about Messianism and Zionism. So what happens next uh, might come as little surprise. Sholem started a new project which is writing the history of the Sabbatan movement. With this, with this study, Sholem uh, specifically addressed the political reality in Palestine and what he deemed at the time to be the gravest danger for Zionism, which is becoming a Sabbatian-like, misguided messianic endeavor. Now, Sholem's early work on Sabbatai Tzvi should therefore understood as a plea, this is the argument, a cry of warning. According to Sholem, the lesson of deluded belief in the false messiah was that people should, uh, uh, that sh be, should be cautioned about wishing what is impossible. For in fact, the Sabbatian experience proved that in history, and this is the important thing, in history, the greatest hope of them all, the hope for a Messiah, never succeeded in creating a promised land. This is 
the lesson we learn from history. Rather, it always brings new kinds of exile and new kinds of suffering. The results of the study um, about Shabbatai Svi should also be seen as a critique of the form of scholar of Jewish Messianism of the day, Josef Klausner. Scholar's underlying methodological assumption was that Messianism could never, should never be understood as an idea, an expectation or a vision. Messianism is always an event in history and as a historical event Sholem showed Messiah, the Messiah always repays his believers with disappointment and by crushing the idea, the ideal of Messianism itself. For Sholem therefore the Sabbatian story is a lesson in hubris. It allowed Jews to ignore historical reality and instead create what he calls an ideological chimera which threatens to uh, disintegr disintegrate Judaism from the inside. So I, I kind of recap the point. Shalom study in Sabbatianism and Sabbatian movement is a political gambit. It, it, is, um, it, is, it is a political gambit against harnessing messianic ideas for contemporary political ends. It also reflects the frustration Shalom himself experienced after immigrating to Palestine. In his study, Shalom tells the story of a promise that was never fulfilled. Having a messianic expectation could been invigorating experience, it steers people to action, but the problem is always lodged in the realization of the vision, which could not but fall tragically short of expectation. This sums up neatly Sholem's personal experience as well. Sholem was a young radical Jew <coughs> until he actually arrived to Palestine. But there is one last point that I would like to make. Sholem's story about Sabbatianism raises the question about the narrative structure of failure. Most stories start with disaster and end with resolution of at least some kind. This is true even to most disaster and horror films. At least a few of the students find their way back to town and they are now smarter, probably. The father usually reunites with his daughter usually in a pile of ashes or as the water kind of recedes from the city. But how does one tell a story that starts with great enthusiasm and fantastic hopes and ends with a whimper? How does one retell a story of crisis which is never redeemed? At this point, I will not commit a definitive answer. Nevertheless, I'd like to suggest one solution, that one solution may be found in Sholem's historiography in the history of the Messianic movement of Shabbat Thank you very much.